You're listening to a Sovereign Hope Church podcast with pastor and teaching elder Adam Benson. If you have your Bibles, you can turn back to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. First Thessalonians chapter 4. We were um, working our way through verses uh, 9 through 12 last week. And I want to read those again to um, set the stage for where we're going to be uh, today as we begin the end of chapter 4. And I say the beginning of the end of chapter 4 because um, we may be in the end of chapter 4 for a little while. It says in verse 9, Now concerning brotherly love, you have no need for anyone to write to you. For you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another. For that indeed is what you are doing to all the brothers throughout Macedonia. But we urge you, brothers, to do this more and more. And to aspire to live quietly. And to mind your own affairs. And to work with your hands as we instructed you. So that you may walk properly before outsiders. And be dependent on no one. We said that Paul is continuing to emphasize that structure of uh, growing in their faith, growing in their trust and their knowledge of who God is, which leads to um, an attitude and a lifestyle of love for others. And that it ultimately results in a steadfast hope in the return of Jesus. So last week we looked again at that aspect of um, the responsibility that we have to love others. And, And Paul reaffirms what we've already said a lot in this chapter about sanctification. That as we grow in our conforming to the image of Christ, that we never can be satisfied with where we're at. We can never be satisfied with our growth in holiness, that there's always room to grow more. Because he says, look, I'm calling you to love others just as you are doing to all the brothers throughout Macedonia. But we urge you, brothers, to do this more and more. And we said Macedonia was a much larger area than just the city of Thessalonica. So not only was this church becoming known for their love in their local church, they were becoming known for their love for Christians in the surrounding areas. And so I challenged you last week that um, as a church, we obviously have the responsibility to love each other, but our responsibility to love does not end with these walls right here, that we have a responsibility to love Christians in Sonoy that aren't a part of our church, to love Christians in the surrounding counties, that we want to be a church that becomes known for its love for other people both Christian and non-Christian. And we talk about the fact that there's a lot of churches that are known for things that that we don't want to be known for. That a lot of times when we name specific churches, that what comes to mind first is not their love for each other. And I share with you that there are churches back in Griffin where where I was living that um, the first thing that I think of when I think of some of the churches in that area is not their love for each other. Instead, it's division and fighting Bad theology, like those are the things that come to mind. And, and I reemphasized to you guys last week that um, as good and as biblical as we think that our theology is here and, and want our theology to be like that here, we want to be known more than for our theology. We want to be known for more than that. We want people to come that are Christians that say, hey, we, we, we want to be a part of this because we, we've heard that your theology is right. And we're excited about that, but we also want people to come here because they have heard of our reputation to love, both to love each other and to love people outside of this church. So Paul is is instructing them very hard about that. And then in verse 11, he tells them to live quietly, 
to mind their own affairs, to work with their hands as we instructed you so that you may walk properly before outsiders and be dependent on no one. I told you in context, if you look at the rest of 1 Thessalonians 1, and then if you move into second, or if you look at all of 1 Thessalonians, then you move into 2 Thessalonians, you begin to pick up on the fact that it seems that these people were getting a little over-anxious about the return of Jesus to the point that it was causing some of them to neglect their normal weekly responsibilities. They'd almost developed this perspective that Jesus is coming back so we don't have to work as hard anymore or maybe we don't even have to work at all anymore. We can quit our jobs and just be evangelistic, uh, just be radical, and we're going to stop doing what we were supposed to be doing before we got saved. And, and Paul says, no, like you have a responsibility to work hard, take care of your families, pay your bills, live as a good citizen, look good to people that are outside Christianity, live properly before them so that they don't see Christianity as an irresponsible religion that discards every responsibility that a normal citizen would have. So he, he's wanting them to be obviously anxious about the return of Jesus, but not at the sake where it begins to cause them to lose or sacrifice their responsibilities that they have as just normal people. So he says, do these things, live quietly, mind your affairs, love other people, so that you may walk properly before outsiders and be dependent on no one. So that's kind of where we were last week. And now we come to verse 13. It says, but we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord, that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. And we come to a passage here where obviously these new believers are very concerned about family members and friends that have been a part of this local church, apparently, but have now passed away. Now, remember, these guys didn't grow up in church. They didn't grow up with, with Christian family members. They don't look back and say, remember, great granddaddy was a Christian and um, we celebrate the fact that we'll see him again. Like the gospel was coming to these people for the very first time. So this is the very first time anybody in their family history has been a Christian. So they have to look back in, in remorse over the fact that great granddaddy was not a Christian and great granddaddy um, did not have his sins forgiven. But what they are dealing with is the fact that, hey, first generation, this is the first Christians in our area. Well, some of them have died. What happens to those people? And so Paul is having to write to give them instruction, to give them encouragement and hope and comfort over the fact that, hey, everything's okay with your dead friends, your dead Christians that have accepted Christ as their Savior. Now, there's a lot of difficulty um, in these verses. I, um, I remember when we first were getting ready to plant this church. And I, I sat down with a couple of pastor friends in the area and, um, you know, kind of telling them this is what we're planning on doing at Sovereign Hope. Um, we're planning on teaching through First Thessalonians is our very first book. And 
everyone that I told tried to discourage me from teaching through this book. They said, you don't need to start with First Thessalonians. And I was like, I mean, it's good. Like, there's a lot of good stuff here. Like, this is exactly where I want to start because uh, we want to emphasize the return of Jesus. And First and Second Thessalonians is heavy on the return of Jesus. And most of my close pastoral friends um, have told me, they said, we're not teaching through First Thessalonians anytime soon. We don't know what to do with First Thessalonians. And even this week, I called a couple of my friends that are pastors, and I said, hey, I'm in chapter 4. Like, we're really about to start getting into eschatology, like end-time stuff. And I said, I'm really struggling with how I'm going to teach this. And, and once again, they said, we can't really help you here because we wouldn't teach this yet. Like, we would not approach this yet. Um, I've got a lot of fear in teaching this. As much as I want to emphasize the return of Jesus, there's fear on my part because I don't want to teach something in these verses where my perspective or opinion or belief is going to change in five years. Like, I want to know what I believe about these verses before I teach them to you so that I don't teach something and then come back in five years and say, hey, let's go back to 1 Thessalonians 4 and 5 because my perspective and opinion has actually changed on those verses. So I need to reteach all that because we believe differently here at Sovereign Hope. When we teach through this now, like I want this to be what we believe. And I want us to see it from Scripture. I don't want our, our position and, and um, opinion about this to have to change. Part of the reason it's so difficult to understand 13 through 18 and then chapter 5 and then the rest of 2 Thessalonians because it requires a good understanding of other eschatological issues if we're going to interpret this passage. Like, you can't just come to these verses, really, and know exactly what it's talking about with also understanding, to some degree, other things that are going on in prophecy and um, in teachings about the end times. Now, we know that the Thessalonians aren't getting these verses and this is the first discussion that they've had about the end times. So that's why I'm telling you, we can't just come to these and just come ignorantly and say, okay, let's just read it and believe whatever these verses say. Let's not worry about what the rest of Scripture says. Let's just worry about what these verses say. Because if you look in chapter 5, verse 1, 1 Thessalonians 5, verse 1, it says, Now concerning the times and seasons, brothers, you have no need to have anything written to you. For you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. How do they know that? How do they know that? Well, the implication is, is that Paul must have already taught them a lot about the end times when he was there during that three weeks to six month time frame when he planted the church. Remember we said that obviously he had taught them that God and Jesus are the same person because he just starts off in chapter one assuming that they believe that. That, hey, God and Jesus are the same. They're our Lord and Savior. So he almost, I mean, he starts off 1 Thessalonians 1, assuming that these guys understand the Trinity. And so we talked about in chapter 1, obviously, Paul, during the three weeks to six months that he was there before he got ran out of town, he instructed them about the Trinity. Well, it's obvious, too, in chapter 5, verse 1 now, that he doesn't feel the need to have to teach them everything about the end times because they're already working with some knowledge about it. So we too, if we're going to approach chapter 4, verses 13 through 18, we can't just come ignorantly without first examining some things first to get us all on the same page 
so that we can understand verses 13 through 18 together. Some issues that we're going to have to figure out in studying this. Are these verses talking about a rapture? Or are these verses talking about the second coming? Now the rapture is the belief in the church that Jesus is going to come back. He's going to take Christians away. Then there's going to be a time of about seven years of tribulation before Jesus comes in what we call the second coming. Okay, so essentially you've got two more times for Jesus to come. He's going to come in the rapture, then he's going to come in the second coming. Now we've got the first coming of Jesus, which is when he came, lived a perfect life, died on the cross. is what we remember this morning in the Lord's Supper. The rapture is not considered the second coming because he doesn't actually touch down on earth. Okay, first coming, Jesus came, walked on the earth. The rapture is not considered a coming of Jesus because the belief is that we meet him in the air and then we go straight back to heaven. The second coming, we would come with Jesus, set down on earth, and now we've got an official second coming. So we've got to figure out, are these verses about the second coming? Is this when this stuff happens? Or does this stuff happen in what we would call a rapture? We also have to examine some Old Testament prophecy and New Testament prophecy because the whole Bible, not just the book of Revelation, the entire Bible talks about Jesus coming back. Do you realize that every New Testament book, with the exception of four, talk about the return of Jesus? Every New Testament book, with the exception of four. Anybody know them? Galatians doesn't. Which is convenient because one of my pastoral friends last night said, I'm teaching on Galatians next. Why? Well, he not talk about the second coming. How convenient. Second and third John. They don't talk about the second coming. Why? Because they're real short. You know, like, we got we to get you something real quick. And Philemon doesn't talk about it. Why? Because Philemon's about restoration between people that were in conflict with each other. Another short book. So Galatians is the only semi-lengthy book in the New Testament that doesn't talk about the second coming. So if we're talking end times eschatology, that doesn't mean that we just go to the book of Revelation. We have to kind of consider what the Bible teaches as a whole, which makes just understanding these verses difficult. We also have to understand the place that Israel, national Israel, plays in the future of God's salvation plans. Do you know that, um, we'll get to this in a minute, I'll hold that. We have to figure out what place does Israel play in the future of God's plans. Some people believe that Israel and the church are two distinct things. Two distinct things. That they are separate entities, separate things that God is working through. Others believe that they're one thing. That when the Bible talks about Israel now, it's talking about everybody that's a Christian. So we have to kind of determine, and we'll see in a minute why this is so important. Are they separate or are they the same? I think it's really interesting to note, though, and then we're going to do an activity together. It's really interesting to note 1 Thessalonians and 2 Thessalonians were written late 40s, early 50s A.D. Okay, so not very long after Jesus is gone. 10, 15 years max, probably, after Jesus leaves, Paul is instructing them about the end times. Do you realize that the book of Revelation hadn't even been written yet? Like, these guys don't have a knowledge about the end times because they've taken a, a course on Revelation. John hasn't even penned the book of Revelation yet. 
So their knowledge about the end times is largely based on the Old Testament and what Paul has instructed to them about the Old Testament. Their, their understanding of rapture, second coming, is not rooted in the book of Revelation because the book of Revelation hasn't even been written yet. And I find that kind of interesting and important to point out. As we strive to understand this, thankfully we do have the book of Revelation, but we should be able to understand these verses without the book of Revelation because they were expected. Okay? I want you to, if you have your notes, turn them on the back. Turn them over on the back. We're going to take a short eschatology quiz to see if you guys are uninformed or if you guys need to be informed about what we're going to talk about today. <laughs> little pop quiz for everybody. All right, question number one. If there is a rapture, and we're going to talk today about arguments for the belief in a rapture, arguments against believing in a rapture. But if there is a rapture, what, if anything, has to happen before the rapture? Not the second coming, but right now, what, if anything, has to happen before the rapture, if there is a rapture? That's question number one. What, if anything, has to happen before a rapture? What has to happen before the rapture can happen, if there is a rapture? Like, is there any prophecy that has to happen? <laughs> What, if anything, has to happen before the rapture? That's true right? <laughs> <laughs> Question number two. Who leaves the earth when the rapture happens, if there is a rapture? Who leaves the earth when the rapture happens, if there is a rapture? Who would actually get snatched away? Hundred so far. All right, here you go. Uh, this is an either-or question. When do people, and we're, we're basing this on a belief in the rapture and the second coming. When do people get new bodies? Rapture or second coming? When do people, if we believe in a rapture and a second coming, when would people get their new glorified bodies? At the rapture or at the second coming? When would believers get new glorified, sinless, we don't die anymore bodies? If there is a rapture and a second coming, we get that at the rapture or at the second coming? <laughs> Alright, now number five, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten. 
You can either write SC for second coming or R for rapture on these. No, don't, don't write anything yet. Just number it. <laughs> Four through ten. You're going to write either SC for second coming or R for rapture. I'm going to read you some passages from Scripture. You tell me if that's talking about a rapture or a second coming. Alright? So we're just going to read it. You tell me. Again, we're assuming that there is a rapture, there is a second coming. So even if you don't believe in a rapture, think in terms of are rapture people going to call this a rapture verse? Okay, so rapture or second coming. Here we go. And I'm not going to tell you where these verses are to give it away for some of you that might. Um, Let's go with... Start off with a... Classic controversial one. Here we go. SC or R. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. Waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. So waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Second coming or rapture? S-C or R? From the rapture perspective. I'm making it right now. I want this to be Yeah, I would like to <laughs> All right, next, SC or R. But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body, by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. We await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body. I'm not telling you. Because I know some of you have study Bibles. All right, next. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings that you may rejoice and be glad when glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. But let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or as a meddler. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? So it talks about um, when glory is revealed. You may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. Thank you. 
Next. It was about these that Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied, saying, Behold, the Lord comes with ten thousands of his holy ones to execute judgment on all and to convict all the ungodly of all their deeds of ungodliness that have committed in such an ungodly way and of all the harsh things that ungodly sinners have spoken against him. These are grumblers, malcontents, following their own sinful desires. They are loudmouth boasters, showing favoritism to gain advantage. Execute judgment on all to convict all of the ungodly when the Lord comes with 10,000 of his holy ones. Second coming or rapture. Next. The Son of Man will send his angels, and they will gather out of his kingdom all causes of sin and all lawbreakers and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Next one. Be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it until it receives the early and the late rains. You also be patient. Establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Be patient, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. Establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Yeah, there was rain in there and there was some other things in there. I don't think it's relevant to which one it is. All right, last one. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and who are left will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. Now concerning the times and seasons, brothers, you have no need to have anything written to you, for you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. While people are saying there is peace and security, then sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman, and they will not escape. But you are not in darkness, brothers, for that day to surprise you like a thief, for you are all children of light, children of the day. We are not of the night or of darkness. So then let us not sleep as others do, but let us keep awake and be sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night. Those who get drunk are drunk at night. But since we belong to the day, let us be sober, sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love and for the hope of helmet of salvation. For God has not destined us to wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. Second coming or rapture. Huh? <laughs> Alright, let's grade them. You can grade your own papers. First question. What has to happen before the rapture? For people that believe in the rapture, nothing has to happen before the rapture. Okay? Part of the... I said what, if anything. But listen, 
for people that believe in the rapture. Part of the support for the rapture position is that Jesus can come at any time. That's where rapture supporters look in Scripture. They see that the fact that, that Jesus can come at any time, that His coming is um, imminent, that it doesn't have to wait on anything. So for the rapture people, nothing has to happen. Now they would say that there are things that have to happen before the second coming. But as far as the rapture goes, Jesus can come at any moment. Who is the... That second coming. That Jesus can't come back uh, with his saints and put an end to stuff until those things happen. But then after that, then, so if, with that belief that Christ came back today, then there's basically a seven people that believe right there's basically a seven year period where everybody else would hear. Yeah, where anything that hasn't been fulfilled would have to be fulfilled in those seven years. Okay. Yep, yep. Alright, who is the rapture for? Who would leave this earth if there is a rapture? Alright, believers, dead or living. Unless, unless you really believe that Israel and the church are completely separate because there are some rapture people that believe dead Israelites from the Old Testament will stay in the grave. The rapture is only for people that got saved when between Jesus being here and now. That the rapture would only be for New Testament saints. Old Testament saints would stay in the grave. Because, because they're two separate things. Because when Jesus rose and had the first fruits, those people Theoretically, would have already been raised because they were already believers in him, and like Abraham, who looked forward, people who looked forward to seeing him. Right, but uh, they would still say those people are still in the grave. That's what they would say. Yeah. <laughs> you may not say that, but <laughs> that's what they would say. They would say Old Testament saints don't get resurrected until the future when Jesus is done dealing with Israel. All right. Question number three: When do we get new bodies? Rapture or second coming? If you believe in a rapture, then you believe we get it at the rapture. Which is where it starts getting really confusing because that means only some people get glorified bodies. People that get saved in the tribulation don't have glorified bodies. And now we have different times where glorified bodies are being handed out. It's not a one-time thing. It's a multiple-time thing. And that gets really confusing. You have to start checking your number to figure out, when do I get mine? Like, am I on the waiting list or... That's where it gets really confusing when you start introducing the rapture to it. Alright? Um, Alright, question number four was from Titus. Was from Titus. Um, it's about the rapture for people that believe in the rapture. The, uh, the blessed hope, the appearing of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ. It's at least rapture verse for most rapture people. There are some people that believe in the rapture that think it's about the second coming. So if you got either one of those, you might be right. The next one is from Philippians 3 about our citizenship in heaven. We're awaiting Jesus to come. That's a rapture passage if you believe in a rapture. The next one is from 1 Peter 4. If you want to jot these down and look at them again later, you can. That's why I'm giving you the references. We're not going to go back and read them. First one was Titus 2, Philippians 3. 1 Peter 4 is considered a second coming passage. Number 7 is from Jude 1. That's considered a second coming passage. Number eight is from Matthew 13. That's considered a second coming passage. 
Number nine was from James 5. That's considered a rapture passage. James 5. And then number 10, what did we put? People that believe in a rapture believe both are being described separately in that passage. So you as the reader are supposed to figure out first part Paul's talking about the rapture, then he transitions to talking about the second coming. That's what rapture people would tell you. The reason, and this is how rapture people divide it, I read to you a portion of chapter 4 and a portion of chapter 5 in 1 Thessalonians. It's convenient that we break up the chapters into chapter 4 and chapter 5 because people that believe in a rapture can say chapter 4 verses 13 through 18 is about the rapture. Then in chapter 5 we have a new topic. The only problem is, is when this church that we've been talking about for so long now, when they received 1 Thessalonians, there weren't any chapter divisions. There weren't any chapter divisions. So if Jason was a part of the church at Thessalonica, and I'm Paul and I write in this letter, I haven't divided this up for Jason to know that I'm about to talk about the second coming, even though I've been talking about the rapture. It's all going to be one big thing. So I'm supposed to expect Jason to realize that I've changed my topic. And I think we're going to see as we study this together that there's really no change in topic here. We're talking about one event, one thing that will happen in the future. Alright, so that's just a little um, introduction to kind of get us thinking about the fact that there's some confusing ideas about rapture and second coming that we've got to work through together. Why teach through these verses? If I've got friends and people that I respect telling me that we shouldn't teach these verses right now and they're too difficult, why are we going to teach these verses? Number one, we want to be a church that correctly hopes in the return of Christ with a balanced urgency. We want to be a church that correctly hopes in the return of Christ with a balanced urgency. Now, we talked about this last week. I do not want Sovereign Hope to become known as some crazy church that always talks about end times, that's always doing series on Revelation, that can't get off the second coming. But what we've done a lot of times in at least American churches, the churches that I've been a part of, is that we rarely, if ever, talk about the second coming unless we're doing a course on Revelation. Like we minimize the return of Jesus. We talk about what it means to live as a Christian all the time in our sermons. But rarely do we discuss the fact that we get together every Sunday because we're waiting for Jesus to come back. So we're wanting to... we overemphasize, I think, silence about the second coming. Here at Sovereign Hope, we're wanting to get us back to a balanced urgency. That Jesus is coming back. We want to talk about that regularly without becoming the weird church that always talks about the end times. Okay, so we're looking for balanced urgency here. Which means when we come to passages like this, as we're teaching through books, verse by verse, we're going to deal with it. We're going to hit it head on and we're going to talk about it in context of what the author is trying to get to us. Secondly, Paul prioritized this topic in his discipleship with new believers. This was a priority for Paul when he discipled this early church. Now we've talked about this church plant in Thessalonica, and we've tried to relate it to what we're doing here in Sonoy. We've talked about discipling new believers, that Paul did this. He was concerned about their sanctification. He's pouring into them. Verse, or chapter 2, I work day and night so I can teach you. 
Everything that you need to know about following Jesus. Well, we've already said earlier today, in chapter 5, verse 1, he says, you don't need to be informed about the times and seasons that this is going to happen. Why? Because he's already taught it to them. We said that he was in Thessalonica for three weeks to six months. And he had already dealt with the end times with these new believers. Which means we can't go more than a year in our church plant without talking about this. This has to be a priority in discipleship. You guys need to be equipped to talk about the end times as we lead people to Christ in this area. Because it has to be a point of emphasis early on in their discipleship. How do we get through tribulations and trials and difficulties in this life? We have the hope that Jesus is coming back. A new believer needs to know that. This early church was going through trials, tribulations, persecutions. The thing that gets them through that is knowing that Jesus is coming back to set everything right. It has to be a point of emphasis in discipleship. And lastly, if new believers need it, then us old believers should already have it. If new believers need it, then us old believers should already have it. I mean, several of the guys that I talk to, I mean, have doctorates from seminaries that are still unresolved about what they believe about the end times. I mean, if you can't go to seminary and get a doctorate and know what you believe about the end times when you come out, I'm not sure why we go to seminary. Like, why go learn for four plus years if we're not going to teach people how to know what happens in the end times? It's got to be a priority for us if we're going to make it a priority with new believers. All right, let's look at some arguments for the rapture, arguments against the rapture. Because like I said, for us to even look at 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 13 through 18, and then look at chapter 5, we got to know, is this talking about the rapture or the second coming? So we can't even get into these verses without first seeing what, um, what support is there for a rapture and what support is there not for a rapture. Alright, so let's look at some reasons that people believe in the rapture. Arguments for the rapture. I'll try to speak slow because I know I didn't give you these in your notes. The first, people that believe this, believe that the Bible teaches we won't be here for a tribulation. People that believe in a rapture say the Bible teaches we won't be here for a tribulation. Two two places they get that from. 1 Thessalonians 5, 9. Feel free to raise your hands if you have questions because I know this is a lot. And I'm operating on the fact that some of you went to winter retreat with us a couple of years ago and sat through a lot of this. Others of you didn't. So if there's questions, please feel free to ask. 1 Thessalonians 5, 9 says, For God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. So we haven't been destined for wrath. That's 1 Thessalonians 5, 9. Now, I mean, that doesn't say anything about a tribulation. That doesn't say anything about us getting snatched away. But there's a general idea that we're not destined for wrath. I don't believe we're destined for wrath. (laughs) Um... But that doesn't mean that we won't go through tribulation. So then let's go to Revelation 3.10. What? Revelation 3.10. This is being written to the church in Philadelphia. We live in Sonoy. Um, because you have kept my word about patient endurance, I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world to try those who dwell on the earth. 
I mean, that's their, their two verses. I mean, those are... Read it to you? Or say the reference? No. Revelation 3.10 is the reference. Because you have kept my word about patient endurance, I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world to try those who dwell on the earth. So John is, is, is communicating Jesus' words here to this church. He says, because you've been faithful to me, I'm going to look at the language... I'm going to keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world to try those who dwell on the earth. So the, the conclusion they draw from that is that Jesus is promising those who are faithful to him, they will be removed from this earth before the hour of trial or before the great tribulation comes upon the earth. Um, if we ever get to study Revelation together, I think we'll see that there's some correlation between what happens in Revelation as well as to what happened in Egypt when God brought plagues upon Egypt. Do you remember that in Egypt there was the Israelites and the Egyptians and that there were times that the plagues did not affect the Israelites? One of the crazy ones is the darkness. Three days they can't see like their hand in front of their face. But over in Goshen, plenty of light. How did God do that? Like Goshen was like right there in Egypt. I don't know. But there was light in Goshen no light for everybody else in Egypt. So in that context, you can see, hey, we're, I'm, I'm sparing you from the plague, but they weren't snatched out. Okay? So I think we can interpret this passage if we're not going to go with the rapture. But yeah, God may protect and even spare at times Christians from fiery trial and tribulation, but it doesn't necessitate him taking them out of this earth. All right, secondly, another support argument for the rapture. And I'll be honest, it's really hard. I mean, the arguments against the rapture are going, to be, are going to feel much more authoritative because at this point right now in my life, I don't believe in the rapture. So I'm trying to make these arguments for the rapture sound as strong as I can, but they come from a perspective where I like immediately want to tell you why I don't believe in that argument. Um, number two, if there's no rapture, then Jesus can't return at any time. Remember I told you that part of the reason to believe in the rapture is that it allows Jesus to come back at any time like he said he could. That it will come like a thief in the night. If all these other things have to happen first, rapture people would say it kind of loses the luster of the thief. You know, that the, the thief has to wait until these other things happen before he can come. Um, some things that are listed... Uh, as things that have to happen, uh, Jason alluded to these earlier, preaching of the gospel to all nations, wars and rumors of wars and earthquakes, the great tribulation, false prophets deceiving people, the coming of the man of sin and rebellion, which is in second, or first Thessalonians, no, second Thessalonians, um, which that's going to be fun. Um, and then the salvation of Israel is described in the New Testament and in the Old Testament as well. So, yeah, <laughs> we're going to buy that second Thessalonians. Um, so there's some things that are told to us in Scripture. These things will happen before Jesus comes back at the second coming. So rapture people say, Jesus obviously said I could come at any time. So there must be two comings, per se, that rapture and second coming, so that these things can happen during the tribulation time. Um, number three, it's a time for Israel. They get this from Jeremiah chapter 30. 
that God is going to take the church out of here because God plans to save Israel during that tribulation time. That God comes back to his covenants with national Israel and the tribulation is largely him working things out with his chosen people from the Old Testament. Jeremiah 30. They would say 1 Thessalonians 4, 16 and 17 deal with us meeting the Lord in the air and then going away. Yeah, 1 Thessalonians 4, 16 and 17. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, with the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. So we will always be with the Lord. This is actually where the, the word rapture comes from. Um, it's the Latin translation for the Greek word apantison. It's A-P-A-N-T-E-S-I-N, apantison. The Latin translation is rapturo. It comes from, um, we'll be caught up together. Some translations may say snatch. That's where the term rapture comes from. It comes from the Latin translation of the original Greek. You won't find the word rapture anywhere in Scripture. doesn't mean that the doctrine is not taught there. You don't find the word trinity anywhere in the Scriptures either. Um, but we know that the trinity is taught in Scripture. But they would say that we meet the Lord in the air and we go away. Um, number five, they would say the word church, ecclesia, is not mentioned in Revelation chapter 4 through 19. So there's no mention of the church, or the, at least the word church, the Greek ecclesia word, in Revelation chapter 4 through Revelation chapter 19. And so the argument would be that we're obviously not here if we're not being talked about. They would also say that in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, this kind of goes along with us not being here. In 2 Thessalonians 2 verse 6 and 7. And you know, this is talking about the man of lawlessness. A.K.A. Antichrist, um, A.K.A. fill in the blank of whoever you've ever heard was the Antichrist. Um, so, and you know what is restraining him now, so that he may be revealed in this time. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains it will do so until he is out of the way. They take that passage to mean that the Holy Spirit is restraining the Antichrist from coming on the scene right now. And that it's only after the Holy Spirit is removed that the Antichrist can actually begin to do all the things that he wants to do. So it goes along with the idea that the church goes away and so does the Holy Spirit. That the Holy Spirit is not present on this earth during the seven years of tribulation. Do what? Okay. And that reference was 2 Thessalonians 2, 6-7. through And then lastly, arguments for the rapture. All right, real quick. People that believe in the rapture and people that don't believe in the rapture. Um, Revelation 20. Write this down and I'm going to try to communicate as much. We're going to camp out here all summer long, so we're going to keep coming back to this stuff. Revelation 20 describes what we call the millennial reign. The millennial reign. That's where some people would say Jesus reigns on this earth for a thousand years. 
We're offering animal sacrifices during this time. The temple's rebuilt. Jesus lives here on this earth as king. But there's people that can reject him because at the end of Revelation 20, it says a great rebellion happens with Satan. Then Jesus squashes him. And then we go into eternity. Revelation 20, we'll get to because there's all kinds of views about what's going on in Revelation 20. We're not going to deal with that right now because it doesn't affect too greatly what happens in 1 Thessalonians 4. In Revelation 20, part of the reason there's a belief for the rapture is that it allows people to actually be alive to go into the millennium. Because with the rapture, Christians would leave, non-Christians would stay on this earth, but some of them would get saved in the tribulation. Jesus would come back at the end of the tribulation, kill all the lost people who would go to hell, and he would judge them. Christians that made it through the tribulation would then be alive to go into the millennial reign. So it, it allows there to be people alive that go into the millennial reign. People that don't believe in a rapture, but believe in a thousand year reign, they have to answer the question, who's alive? Because if it's just a second coming... Jesus comes, squashes the lost people, they, they're judged, they go to hell. Christians are raised to life, given glorified bodies, and then there's nobody really left to go into the millennial reign to reject Jesus. Does that make sense? So the rapture allows people to be alive to go into the millennial reign. I mean, that's confusing because it was kind of confusing to explain it. Um, we'll come back to that, but that's just a quick... Alright, arguments against the rapture. We'll fly through these real quick. Um, now this is debated, but a lot of people say that this teaching about the rapture did not show up until around the 1800s. Like, a little over 100 years ago. Um, we should always be cautious about new teachings that have only been around for a few hundred years. If it's true that it's only been around for a few hundred years, then that means Paul and these guys didn't ever teach the rapture. Okay? Um, first argument against the rapture. The New Testament has much more teaching on promises of tribulation rather than escape from tribulation. There's a ton of passages in the New Testament that teach... We will go through difficult times. We will suffer for Jesus. As opposed to promises that we will avoid those type of scenarios. And I'll try to, I'll email these notes out because there's a lot of verses. Uh, if you want to jot down a couple of them. 1 Peter 4.14. Romans 8.17. Revelation 2.10. Those are promises that we will go through times of tribulation as Christians. Alright, one of the arguments for the rapture is that Jesus can come at any time if there's a rapture. Um, arguments against the rapture. The signs that Jesus that have to happen before Jesus comes back, they may have already been fulfilled. Okay, so you can write that down. Arguments against the rapture. Jesus can come at any time from, a, from the perspective of someone who um, doesn't believe in a rapture because these signs may have already been fulfilled. We'll, we'll touch on a couple of them. The gospel has to be preached to all the nations. Okay? Well, Jesus said that. When Jesus said that, there was a list of nations at that time, right? 
That list of nations is different today. Right? I mean, there was no United States of America. There was no Peru and Brazil. We didn't have countries and nations broken up like we do today. So did Jesus mean that before I can come back, all the nations in 2012 have to have the gospel? Or is it all the nations at that time had to have the gospel? Because there's actually passages in Scripture where, in the New Testament where Paul says the gospel has gone out to the whole world. Like from Paul's perspective, we, we, we've basically got the gospel everywhere. And I was talking with some guys last night. If you think about it, in, especially in relation to the Old Testament, there, there was only the, the amount of people that followed Christ or followed God, followed Yahweh in the Old Testament, most if not all those people lived in or around Israel, right? Like you didn't have people living in other countries that followed Yahweh. They all moved to Israel when they followed Yahweh. People like Ruth. Ruth says, I'm going to go home with you, Naomi. Your God will be my God. I'm not staying here in Moab. I'm going home with you. Rahab lives in Jericho. She says, I want your God to be my God. I'm leaving Jericho. I'm going to live in Israel now. So Christians in the Old Testament lived in Israel. Christians in the New Testament, well, they live everywhere. Right? I mean, there are Christians all over the globe today. And there are probably Christians in every country today. Now, does that mean every people group, every language has the gospel? No. But does that mean that, that um, there's probably Christians in every country? Probably really close. Because there's multiple people groups in different countries. Okay, So some of these signs, if not all these signs, may have already been fulfilled so that Jesus can come back at any time. Um, number three. And this, this kind of goes against the idea that Israel and the church are separate. The Bible seems to be about Christ redeeming the church made up of both Jew and Gentile. In Ephesians chapter 5, the um, Bible seems to be about Christ redeeming the church made up of both Jew and Gentile. Because in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 25... Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. Paul's comparing Christ and the church to husband and wife. But Paul is saying the intention all along was to show you the relationship between Christ and the church. He says all the way back in Genesis where the instruction was, leave your, your mom and dad and cleave, cleave to your spouse. That's supposed to be a picture of what Christ and the church does. So the church is not just a New Testament thing. It's an all the time thing in the Bible. Back in Genesis, the intention was to save the church. You don't have him saying... Uh, Jesus was given up or, or gave his life to redeem both the church and Israel. 
It's to redeem the church, to present her pure and blameless before God. So, I'm not saying that there's not a place for national Israel. I'm not saying that God is done with national Israel as his chosen people. But I can't make a distinct separation to say that they've got two different end times to look forward to. There seems to be a, there's neither Jew nor Greek, Paul tells us in the New Testament. You are all one body now, one spirit, one flesh. All right? Arguments against the rapture, it looks like the church and Israel are more the same than they are different. Ephesians 5, 25-33. All right, that word rapture in 1 Thessalonians 4, 17. Write down Matthew 25, 6 and Acts 28, 15. Remember, part of the support for the rapture is that it means that we're caught away. That we meet the Lord in the air and then we go away. Go to heaven. Um, Acts 28.15. So Matthew 25.6, Acts 28.15. Both of these verses use the same Greek word. Apantison. These verses have nothing to do with the end times. Okay? But they they use the same word. And the word is used in context of um, going and meeting somebody... And then coming with them back to the same place that you just left. It's the idea that we go out and meet somebody. And then we accompany them back to where we just were. Like Sarah in the first hour was, was watching for her friend to come to church today. When he shows up in the parking lot, what did she do? She got out, she walked out, she met him, and then she brings him in with her. That's the context that this, uh, this word is used other two times in the New Testament. So if there's no rapture, this word doesn't cause a problem, because what it very well, very well may mean is that when Jesus does come back, we do meet him in the air, just like 1 Thessalonians 4 says. But we don't go to heaven, we come to the earth where we were. We go, meet him outside, and we accompany him back to where we just were. Okay? The other two references is how it's used in the New Testament. Okay? Um... The fifth thing, argument for the rapture, Titus 3, 4 through 6 tells us that the Holy Spirit is necessary for salvation. Right? Like you have to have the Holy Spirit to get saved. Holy Spirit has to convict you. Holy Spirit has to draw you. We're sealed with the Holy Spirit. So if the church goes away in the tribulation time, if the Holy Spirit goes away in the tribulation time, And yet people still get saved in the tribulation time? It's inconsistent with what scripture teaches. Um, Titus 3, 4 through 6. How can people get saved in the tribulation if all the Christians leave and the Holy Spirit leaves? Because people that believe in a rapture believe that people get saved in the tribulation. Mainly Israel. Mainly about 144,000 of them. How do they get saved if there's nobody here to share the gospel with them? You know, we've talked before. Jesus could send angels all over the earth to share the gospel. But he doesn't. He chooses to use us, people, humans, to communicate the gospel. It would be a drastic change in God's plan for him to yank everybody that's an evangelist, everybody that has the gospel out of here, take the Holy Spirit who actually saves people out of here, And then plans to save at least 144,000 Jewish people during that time. Seems inconsistent. 
2 Thessalonians 1. I'm going to try to wrap this up real quick. I hate the fact that we have to take two weeks off from meeting here. Um. <laughs> 2 Thessalonians 1, 6 through 7. This is a passage that I think illustrates why we have some passages that sound like a rapture that are good news for believers and a second coming passage that sounds like judgment and wrath. Okay? Look at 2 Thessalonians 1, 6 through 7. We'll start in verse 5. This is evidence of the righteous judgment of God, that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God for which you are also suffering. Since indeed God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you, talking about Christians, and to grant relief to you who were afflicted, as well as to us, when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. They will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. When he comes on that day to be glorified in his saints, to be marveled at among all who have believed, because our testimony to you was believed. You've got like two different perspectives about the coming of Jesus. If you're a lost person and Jesus comes back, it's vengeance, it's wrath, I'm being judged. But he, he intertwines in this verse, if you're a Christian, it's marvelous, it's glorious. I'm not going to get wrath. I'm not destined for wrath. I've been forgiven. As we celebrated this morning, I, I've eaten the bread. I, I've got Jesus' perfection applied to me. I'm perfect now because of the work of Christ. I don't have any sin anymore. So I'm excited about Jesus coming back. Over here, lost person, it, it's awful. It's horrible. It's horrific. I think we see throughout the New Testament, the passages that we read this morning, some that sound judgmental, others that sound hopeful. It's because the second coming will be received two different ways. It's going to be good for some and bad for others. Depending on what the author was trying to highlight, determined how he wrote about it. If he's writing warning, repent of your sins, why? Because Jesus is coming back and it's going to be bad. But if you're already a Christian and he's writing about Jesus coming back, you be encouraged. You celebrate it. You look forward to it. You be anxious for it. It doesn't have to be two separate comings. But it will be two different receptions for that coming. Um, last two things. A lot of the hope about the second coming, if there is a rapture, a lot of the hope in Scripture about the second coming would either be for people who got a second chance or for believers that are already in heaven. Matthew 24, 29 through 31. And Revelation chapter 1, verses 1 through 8. Matthew 24, 29 through 31. Revelation 1, 1 through 8. Here's what I mean by that. If, if the New Testament is constantly telling us to look forward to the second coming, death goes away, sorrow goes away, no more crime, no more sin, no more death. If that comes in the future, but before all that, we actually go to heaven. It seems like the hope of the second coming is for people that are living in the tribulation. <laughs> Which typically get viewed as um, 
like the second chance people, like you should have gotten it the first time, like you, you missed the rapture. Like it's never viewed good by rapture people to be living in the tribulation. Like your guy, like you guys didn't get it the first time. So there's so much hope for the second coming. If we're in heaven, there's no reason for us to be hoping about it in heaven. We're with Jesus already. I'm not, I am looking forward to Jesus coming back, but I'm in heaven. So it seems inconsistent for there to be so much communication about the second coming if we're not going to even be here anyways for it. Like if we're going to be coming with Jesus, you would expect that to be the, the emphasis. That we get to come back with Jesus when all this judgment happens. As opposed to we get to look forward to Jesus because we'll be spared from that judgment. Two applications and then... Um, We'll kind of handle we'll handle our leaving time differently. I'm gonna I'm gonna pray we'll be done, but I'm gonna ask if you want to stick around and ask questions. That we'll kind of stay in our format, but if you need to leave, you can go, and I'll take some questions before we actually dismiss. Okay? Applications. I told you that, or I prayed this morning that I don't want to study this just to fill our head with knowledge. So write this down. We want to understand the return of Christ. We want to understand the return of Christ in such a way that we are comforted. We want to understand the return of Christ in such a way that we are comforted when we encounter death and are encouraged as we relate to each other. Because that's definitely the thrust of what Paul's talking about here. Be encouraged or be comforted when you encounter death. A Christian funeral should be different than, than a regular funeral. We're celebrating the life of a Christian. We know where they are. We know what their future looks like. He says, don't sorrow as those who have no hope. So the main thrust of why Paul's even addressing this is be comforted when you encounter death and be encouraged as you relate to each other. Because he closes out both his section in chapter 4 and in chapter 5. Encourage one another with these words. Encourage one another and build one another up just as you are doing. So the purpose is to be comforted with death, encouraged as we relate to each other. And then lastly, we want to draw others to Christ. Utilizing the delay in his return appropriately. We want to draw others to Christ, utilizing the delay in his return appropriately. If you want to jot down 2 Peter 3, 1-13. through That passage talks a ton about how uh, God has not forgotten to send Jesus back for us. That there will be people that doubt, hey, Jesus hadn't been around in a long time. He must not be coming back. And Peter compares it to the time of Noah, where there was a time of instruction that the flood is coming, but there was a hundred plus years where Noah built the ark, and there was time for people to get on board if they wanted to. Jesus is telling us in Peter, in Second Peter here, I haven't come back yet because I want everybody to get saved. It says that he doesn't desire for any to perish, but that all would come to repentance. So every day that we wake up, we need to realize this gives us more and more opportunity to share the gospel with friends and loved ones and even strangers that we're coming in contact with. Because here's the facts. If Jesus had come back two years ago, there are people today that would have gone to hell. But because he chose to delay his return, there are people that are in the kingdom today that would not have been two years ago. 
So Jesus delays his return, not because he's slow in coming back, but because he desires that all men would come to repentance. So we need to utilize it. We utilize his delay by sharing the gospel faithfully. All right, I'm going to pray. Like I said, I'll take some questions because I know that's a lot of information, especially for those of you this is the first time that you're really hearing it. And um, let's see if I can answer this. Let's pray. God, we do thank you for the time that we've had to look into your word. God, we are begging you to help instruct us and help us to understand what these verses mean for us. God, we want to know your word. We want to be informed about your word. We know that you've given it to us to instruct us, to teach us, so that we can encourage others, so that we can be comforted. God, I pray that you would remove the confusion. But God, help us to realize that we're going to have to be faithful stewards of the word to understand this. That this material is debated by strong Christians. And we can't expect to just come here and learn it real quick. We're going to have to labor in this to understand it. So that we can teach and disciple others in it. So God, I pray that you would do that in our life over this summer. As we move into the fall, God. That we would be faithful stewards of your word. That you would use the Holy Spirit to teach us what we need to know. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Questions that that brings up. And like I said, if you got to go, then you are free to go without feeling... Like it's inappropriate to get up and leave. Questions that that left you with? Anything you need me to repeat or clarify? Second Peter three one through thirteen. Any other questions or things I need to clarify? Titus 3, 4 through 6. of the word to people. So if there's no preacher to preach, that also minimizes how do people get saved. But yeah, that, that passage is not specifically minimizing the role of the Holy Spirit. It's just emphasizing a point that Paul's trying to make that we have to go faithfully tell people who don't know about Christ that we can't just assume that God's goodness and love is going to allow people in Africa that don't have the word into heaven because they didn't have the word. That we have to go tell them about Christ if they're going to be saved. So he's not emphasizing the Holy Spirit there, but he's not also taking away from it. He's emphasizing the other aspect that angels don't go tear, don't go tear the gospel. Bibles don't just pop up in other countries in their language. That we have to actually labor to see them saved. But what about the whole thing about the creation that we have to see what we, can, what we can see in creation, according to Romans 1, 2, and 3, what we can know about God in creation is only enough to condemn us, not enough to save us. 
that it removes any injustice in God because there's enough of God's um, invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and Godhead, that we are without excuse, is what Paul says. So the knowledge, what we call general revelation, doesn't save, it condemns. It gives us enough knowledge about God, enough knowledge about his law, according to Genesis 2, that we know the law written on our hearts. And he even says, and I think that there's different degrees of judgment for people that didn't have the Bible. They'll be judged by the law in their hearts, but it's enough to condemn them. They know what's right and wrong, but they don't always choose to do right, is what Genesis or what Romans 2 tells us. So Paul's building an argument that no, no one's righteous. No one can get saved without the work of Christ in, in chapter 3. So you're right. Yeah, there's, there's general revelation, but it doesn't save us. It only condemns us. Other questions about what we discussed today? Quick question. Does the Jewish, some of the Jewish religions do not believe that Christ, Jesus, was who he says he was, right? Right. So does the, do they feel that the rapture gives I think the theory is that the rapture will affirm to them that they missed it and that they should have seen Jesus as the Messiah. But most people believe that the rapture is what's considered a secret coming, meaning that Jesus is not visible to unbelievers. That's a big distinction that's made between rapture and second coming. That Jesus comes in the heavens and everything's darkened and it's like climactic, that second coming. Rapture people would say Jesus comes very quietly and we're just out of here and nobody really knows what just happened. That there's no Jesus in all his glory. That he comes and we're out of here so fast, twinkling of an eye, that most people will say, most people will probably try to come up with an excuse for why so many people in the population are gone. That it won't be clear that it was Jesus. Rapture people would say everybody won't hear it. I don't believe in a rapture, so I believe that everybody will hear the second coming trumpet. Well, see, I think it's important for, I don't know how much you've studied um, what I studied was years ago, it's one of those, okay, I'm going to in my mind, and so I could have gone back. What I found growing up in a church that believed in rapture, believed premillennialism, that type of thing, I didn't study it enough. And I reasoned logically, and I, and I believed things that were inconsistent with what people who had studied it and believed in a rapture believed. Meaning that it, you can't, you can't, like, if there's inconsistency, you couldn't say that um, I believe in a rapture, but I believe everybody will hear the trumpet. If, there, if everybody that has studied it and believes in the rapture says contrary to that, like you're inconsistent, you'd be inconsistent with like the main teaching about the rapture. Does that make sense? So if we start piecing together, like this is how I think it'll happen. If it's inconsistent with like that position, then it really needs to be examined. Because then we're starting to come up with like a bunch of individual positions that may be inconsistent with other aspects of that position. I take that from the from that everybody here is right, and they can all find the scripture incorrectly or see them in the field and 
or we take it all we left in the Middle East when it was time to go in or whatever, or in the work day to come to the fire and come back. They all have to come that some of them chose to stay longer and longer. Yeah, I mean, I haven't studied it enough to know um, the details about the trumpet. I know in what I have read, though, that there's a big point of emphasis that the rapture is secret, that people don't know. That's like a thief coming in the night that is very secret, that it's not proclaimed, and that the second coming is the one where, boom, like everybody knows about it. But that, again, that's just based on what I'm reading. It's really hard to get all your eschatology questions answered because it's really hard to find like a consistent source. Like, I can't get a list of everything that John MacArthur believes about the end times. Like, I, I read stuff, but then when I have questions, I don't have an avenue to say, hey, John MacArthur, you believe in a rapture and a premillennial view. Can you help me understand what you believe about this? Because they don't usually write about the weaknesses in their arguments. They write about the strong points in their arguments. So when I try to figure out, hey, what about the weaknesses, I can't find any information about how John MacArthur addresses the weaknesses. So that, it's really hard, too, to figure that, that aspect out. Yeah. Question? Sure. Oh, I'm very interested in this subject, but I've always heard about the 144,000. Who would you, and from tribulation people, I guess, sort of believers that are left? Specifically, it's, specifically in Revelation, 144,000, 12,000 from every tribe uh, is listed in the book of Revelation. Some. Yep. If there was a trumpet blast at the rapture 
Let me, let me show you this. We didn't get time to, show, to look at this. But in Matthew 24 and in 1 Thessalonians 4, this is a rapture passage and a second coming passage. But they are very, very similar in the language that's being used. Listen to Matthew 24. This is about the second coming. It says, immediately after tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened, the moon will not give its light, the stars will fall from heaven, and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. So that's where you get that climactic, the heavens look crazy. Then will appear in heaven the sign of the Son of Man. Then all the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds. So you've got clouds of heaven with power and great glory. He will send out his angels, loud trumpet, gather his elect from the four winds from one end of heaven to the other. Okay, so you've got um, clouds, trumpet, angels, saved people being gathered. Now, if you go back to 1 Thessalonians 4, which is a rapture passage. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven, so both are coming from heaven, with a cry of command, the voice of an archangel. Here, he's got a voice of an archangel. In Matthew 24, he comes with angels. The sound of the trumpet of God, so we've got trumpets, the dead in Christ. Those who are alive, they're being gathered in the air. So you've got some similarities there. Um, that's where I lean towards saying that it's the same event being described with different perspectives being highlighted. Okay, I'm going to answer your question, but to kind of further Yeah, if there is a rapture, there's definitely two, two trumpets. 
Yeah. If there is a rapture, there's definitely trumpets at both. Well, there has to be, because I just read to you 1 Thessalonians 4, that's a rapture, there's a trumpet. Matthew 24, second coming, there's a trumpet. So, yeah. I think you can press that analogy too much because second coming, I believe, becomes like a thief in the night, but it's more about the timing as opposed to... I mean, Jesus is not coming to steal anybody. That's what a thief does, right? So, I mean, I think you can press the analogy too much. Look, you believe in rapture. Alright, if you've got questions, feel free to email them to me or text them or call me. Um, don't forget, next week we won't be here. We'll be meeting at uh, houses in Sonoy since this park is reserved. So if you'd like directions to somebody's house to meet next week, we're going to then go to the park at the end of CB Street. It's the ball field in Sonoy. And we're going to cook out at 11.15 and play kickball together. But we're going to meet at 10 o'clock for a time of prayer and encouragement at the different houses in Sonoy. So if you guys would like directions... Um, you can see Tyson. Um, he can get those to you if you'd like to join us next week. The week after, we're going to be at Anna's house in Williamson for um, a baptism and a swim party. That's how we do baptism here. We don't have a baptismal pool, so we did a swimming pool. And uh, we're baptizing Thomas Gamble back here, and uh, we'll be celebrating that day in two weeks. So if you guys would like to join us, we'd love to have you. Um, Tyson can give you directions if you'd like to do that.